Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17 today. Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. And as we look to this, uh, the title of our time together is simply this, Don't Fall Prey to Silly Questions. Don't Fall Prey to Silly Questions. Let's read the text again. It's a short passage, and then we'll have a word of prayer and just ask God to speak to us this morning as we look to His Word. The Bible says this, And they send unto Him certain of the Pharisees and of the Herodians to catch Him in His words. And when they were come, they say unto him, Master, we know that thou art true and carest for no man, for thou regardest not the person of men, but teachest the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? Shall we give or shall we not give? But he, knowing the hypocrisy, said unto them, Why tempt ye me? Bring me a penny that I may see it. And they brought it. And he saith unto them, Whose is the image and superscription? And they said unto him, Caesar's. And Jesus answering said unto them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. God, we ask again today that as we look to your word that you would speak to our hearts, God, that that we would understand the fullness of this passage, that we would understand how it applies to our lives. But then, God, help us to understand that if all we gain today is knowledge, but we don't apply it, then, then really it's of no value to us. So I pray that we would just not grow in knowledge, but that we would grow in submission. We pray today, God, that, that you would draw us closer to yourself through this text. Help us, God, to understand what our place is in this life. And ultimately, as we find in the end of this text, we understand it's to render unto God the things that are God's. So help us today. Help us to see clearly. Help us to understand plainly. Help us to live purposefully, God, as we seek to serve you in this world. We thank you again for the time that we can gather. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I love... A good question. And I'm going to emphasize that word, good. We've all heard it said that there are no dumb questions, but that's not entirely true, and I think we know that. I think the better way to frame or phrase that is that there's no dumb, sincere questions. Because we've all found ourselves in a position where the question being asked was not genuine or sincere, but rather it was asked to set us up, to trip us up, or to manipulate us into doing something that we did not want to do or be involved in. Titus 3.9 actually tells us to avoid foolish questions. Proverbs would agree with this statement as it says in Proverbs 26.4, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. And so there are good and sincere questions that may seem foolish, but in reality they are not. And then there are the manipulative and insincere questions that need to be avoided. My favorite, and this is sarcasm, type of question is, can a good Christian do, have, or enjoy? And you can fill the blank in with whatever you want. Many times these questions are asked by new or baby Christians who are genuinely trying to please God. And in those cases, I do enjoy the conversation. But then there are also many times where these questions are asked to help somebody feel better about the position they have chosen to take on a certain matter or to set themselves in a higher position as they compare themselves to others. Often these questions center on external or preferential things. And if you knew my take on some of these things, you might not like me. But guess what? There's a lot of days I don't even like myself, so we're in the same boat. You're in good company. But we must remember what the Apostle Paul said. All things are lawful for me. And there's a lot of people who love the first part of that verse, isn't it? I, I can do whatever I want. All things are lawful for me. But what does he go on to say? That not all things are expedient. Not all things are helpful. 
And so when we come to these questions in life of should a Christian, can a Christian, uh, should a Christian take part in X, Y, and Z, we don't just have to think through if we have permission to do certain things or if we can do certain things, but we have to think through it in the way that Paul thought through it. And that's in this vein. Is it actually helpful to me? Is it helping me live out the gospel? Is it helping me make an impact for the kingdom? Why, why do I say all this? Well, I think as we look through the interactions with Christ, we see that oftentimes the questions that the Pharisees or the religious crowd brings him are only to get him to come off task and to to lose focus of the mission. And I think, honestly, there are times in Christianity where that same line of questioning or that same reasoning is used only to, to pull us away from what we should be doing rather than to propel us in what God has called us to do. And so as Christ hears these questions, we know he often masterfully answers those who are asking the questions as he does in our text today. But we must understand that Christ never lets it distract him from staying true to the mission that God has called him to. And oftentimes as believers, we like to think on or dwell on or meditate on or or speak of all the things that God hasn't made clear. And at the very same time, what do we like to do? Ignore the things that God has made clear. We like to think through, well, what if, or can I, or should I, or how can I accomplish this? And all the while, God is saying, hey, I appreciate you thinking through those things from a Christian worldview, and I think we should do that. But those questions, those things we are thinking through, should not pull us away from the things that God has called us to do but rather we should strive to walk in genuineness and in humility, making sure that every area of our lives is not simply what we want it to be, but what God wants it to be. So in the Christian life, there's going to be things that come up, questions that arise that that we will come to different conclusions on. Have you ever experienced that before? Nobody's experienced that before? And guess what? That's okay. It's okay for us to draw different conclusions about different things, things that are preferential, things that are on the fringe, but we should all be motivated or walking in the clear commands that God has given us in Scripture. There are things that God has left up to Christian liberty that we will probably not see eye to eye on, but those things should not divide us into becoming a fractured army who spends more time fighting each other than we are spending time fighting for the souls of lost men. And you may ask, what does that have to do with the passage that we're looking at today? Well, I think it has a lot to do with it. And I hope by the end of our time together that you'll in some ways agree with me as Christ is relaying to those who are with him on this day the importance ultimately of rendering unto God the things that are God's. The big idea this morning is this. The gospel brings clarity to that which is confusing And it brings unity to that which is divided. Christ's reaction to this insincere questioning proves that secondary questions often detract from primary obligations. Secondary questions often detract from primary obligations. This morning I want to see four things that hopefully will help us. And my prayer is that we would see where the enemies of the gospel will join forces to stand against us, and how we as believers can be united even in our differences in the gospel as we move forward for the sake of the kingdom. The first thing we see this morning is, don't, uh, I'm sorry, the first thing we see is that the gospel fuels the desires of wicked men. The gospel fuels the desires of wicked men. In verses 13 through the first part of verse number 15, the Bible says, And they send unto him certain of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. And when they were come, they say unto him, Master, we know that thou art true and that thou carest for no man, for thou regardest not the person of men, but teachest the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? Shall we give or shall we not give? The gospel fuels the desires of wicked men. Look how verse number 13 begins. And they send unto him. Well, who is 
the they? Well, logically, if we think through the text, understanding that we've been in one day of the week for the past several weeks as we've been going through this time together, the they, as we draw a logical conclusion, would be the religious crowd who is seeking to destroy and undermine and get rid of and and, uh, do away with the person of Jesus Christ. Most tend to believe it was the the greater body of the Sanhedrin who would encompass the they. And then as they move forward in their planned attack against Christ, they would send different groups at different times to question Christ about different things. Remember earlier uh, in the verses we saw last week, it says after Christ answered them and he gave them that great parable about, about the man who owned the vineyard and the servants and how these, these men destroyed all the, the servants and then they killed the son. The Bible says in verse number 12, and they sought to lay hold on him. And so the they that it's referring to in verse 12 is is a smaller portion of the larger group and the they in verse number 13 is another smaller portion of that same larger group. There was a large group of people who was desiring to destroy Christ, to get rid of Christ, and they were working together to bring this thing to come to pass. Now the interesting thing as you read verse 13 is that the groups that are mentioned are not groups of people that would normally get along. Mark tells us that it's the Pharisees and the Herodians. The Pharisees, we know, were a strict a group of strict religious leaders, and we have seen them interact with Christ often. And their interactions were never pleasant, were they? They were always condemning Christ. They were always picking apart what Christ was doing, trying to get him to be tripped up so they could cast him away from the people of Israel and prove once and for all that he was indeed a false prophet. They would not believe the message of the prophets that a Messiah was coming, but instead they wanted to destroy the one who said and who others claimed to be that very son of God who came to seek and to save that which was lost. So the Pharisees were the religious part. The Herodians were a liberal political group who pledged allegiance to Rome and to Herod. The Herodians were... were oftentimes vicious and violent, either in action or in word. They would give uh, their, their lives for the sake of Rome. They would give their lives for the sake of Herod. And if you know anything about the Herods in the New Testament, what do you know? Not the most stand-up people, right? They, they were evil. They were conniving. They, they were manipulative. They were powerful, and they used their power to get what they wanted. And so this political group, the Herodians join forces right now with the Pharisees, as they have done at other times in the Gospels, to come and bring a question to Christ that they thought would trip him up to the point that they could condemn him to death. These two groups naturally despised each other. The Herodians, being representatives of Herod and of Rome, were hated by the Jews and the Pharisees. Why? Because the Jews and the Pharisees did not want Caesar or Herod or the Herodians in their land. And yet that's where they were. And that's where they were ruling. And so they hated each other. They despised each other on a normal day-to-day basis. But in this instance, we see that they were willing to work together. And the Bible says the reason they were willing to work together was to catch him in their word, in his words. The word catch there in the Greek is agru, and it means to hunt or to capture or to pursue eagerly or to catch. And doesn't that just describe to us the nature of these men? They were angry. They were upset. They were infuriated that Christ was here and that he was still teaching. The Jews, that they, that they were upset that he was still teaching in the temple. The Herodians were upset that Christ was there as a threat to the government that was in place in that day. And as much as these two groups disagreed on so many things, they agreed in one thing, and that was simply this, that Christ needed to go. And evil men who often walk in different directions can usually find something to unite on if it will benefit them. And in this case, the thing that would benefit them was getting rid of Christ. Each group was angered for their own reasons. Each group wanted to get rid of Christ for their own reasons. And so they come to him to catch him in their words. And when they begin to speak, you can tell the the flattery there is just simply disgusting. Look at what they say in verse number 14. When they were come, they say unto him, 
master, teacher. Now, would they have really looked at him as a master or a teacher? Would they have looked at him as a rabbi, one that they wanted to learn from, one that they were seeking to gain wisdom from? Absolutely not. And so immediately when Christ saw them coming, he knew something was up. And then when he heard them speak, what did he know? Here we go again. This is the third attempt of five in the end of Mark 11 through, Mark, through the end of chapter 12 where these groups come together to seek to destroy Christ. They say, Master, in flattery, in flippancy, we know that thou art true and care for no man. You regard not the person of men. What does that mean, that Christ didn't care for people? No. It's just the king's English way of saying, we know you don't care what people think of you. We understand that you are not manipulated by the opinions of men, that you're not controlled by what people have to say about you or to you or how people lift you up. And isn't it interesting that as they say you care not for the opinions of men or for the flattery of men, what is it that they're trying to do in this moment? Manipulate and flatter him. And then they go on to say, but you teach the way of God in truth. How bad do you think it hurt them to say those words? Everything they were saying was a lie coming from their lips. But everything they were saying was also indeed the truth as it pertained to the Son of God. And so these evil men came together and their desire was to catch Christ in his words as they would trip him up. And so they flatter him, they butter him up. And as they butter him up, Christ understands fully what is going on here. And then they pose the question. And this is the question that they were united in. They were not united in an answer, but they were united in this reality that this was a good question to ask to get rid of the person of Jesus Christ. And they simply posed the question, a question that they probably thought on and dwelt on, a, a, a question that they probably went through and changed the wording to time and time again as they had all their, their evil groups together trying to figure out what they could ask. And they come and ask him the simple question, is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? Now here Christ was in the presence of a group of Herodians who lifted up Rome, who lifted up Caesar, who supported Herod and all his, his evilness in every way that they could. And asking the very same question was this group of religious men who hated Rome, who hated Herod, who wanted nothing to do with Caesar and wanted nothing to do with the Herodians. Yet they're united in this question because their desire was to get rid of the person of Jesus Christ. Neither group really cared to learn from what Christ had to say. They simply wanted to use what Christ had to say against him to destroy him. And so the question is simple. Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar? Is this something that we as Jews should be taking part in? Is this something that we as, as God-fearing individuals should be doing in our lives? Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar? And then in verse number 15, it's almost as if the crowd catches the question and they begin to ask it. And, and the, the low mumbling or murmuring amongst the crowd is simply this. Should we do it? Should we pay tribute? Should we give tribute? Should we do this thing that we have been doing even though it goes against our flesh and blood? And so it wasn't now just the Pharisees and the Herodians that were asking the question, but imagine the whole crowd. Should we do it? Should we do it? And as, as Christ is standing there on that day, while many of us probably would have felt the pressure of the situation, we would have wanted to give an answer that was appeasing both sides. We wanted, would have wanted to give an answer that was, was, was palatable for all who were in the temple court on that day. We understand that Christ was not swayed by these things, but rather he faithfully plotted on in the mission that God gave him. And so these evil men had joined forces to come and ask Christ a question that they believed would destroy him. But why was this question such a big deal? Well, from a Jewish perspective, understand that as they lived in the place that God had given them, that place was now occupied by a Roman government. They wanted nothing to do with Rome, as we said. They most times wouldn't have been caught dead carrying Roman money. Why? Because the Roman money itself was in some ways a form of worship 
to those who were set in power over them at that day. And so the Pharisees came asking the question to see if Christ was one who had defected. There were those who were Jewish that said, hey, it's no big deal. We're just going to go along with it. And their line of questioning or their reason for questioning in this moment was to capture him, to catch him so that they could destroy him. And they're asking the question, should we pay tribute to Caesar? If he said yes, they would know that he was not a true Jew. They would know he was not a true prophet. They would know that he was not a true man of God. Why? Because no true Jew would say yes, pay tribute to Caesar. It would go against everything that they stood for. And so why then were the Herodians there? Well, if you remember, the Herodians were great supporters of Rome, of Herod, and all of that evil that was taking place in their day. And if they could catch Christ saying, don't pay tribute, what could they label him as? An insurrectionist. One who was against Rome, one who needed to be destroyed. And certainly, maybe this wouldn't have been the case for every person who said we shouldn't pay tribute to Caesar. But Christ had a following. Christ had a great crowd of people who were hanging on every single word that they said. And so the Pharisees came from a religious or a Jewish standpoint saying, if he says pay tribute, we need to destroy him because he's not a real man of God. And the Herodians were there saying, if he says don't pay tribute, then we need to get rid of him. Why? Because he's an insurrectionist who has set himself against Rome to overthrow and to destroy and ruin everything that we are currently enjoying. And so do you get the weight of the question? Do you get how if you were there on that day, you probably would have been thinking, oh man, they got him now. Do you get how, how as Christ was standing there on that day, the tension was sharp. And though the crowd was murmuring over and over again, what should we do? Should we pay? Should we not pay? We understand that, that Christ was not influenced by these things. And though evil men were desiring to destroy the person of Christ, we understand that Christ was not swayed by evil men. And friends, that is something that we should greatly rejoice in today. If you remember back after the baptism of Christ, the Bible says that the Spirit leads Christ into the wilderness. And why does he go to the wilderness? Well, he goes and he's, he's tempted of Satan there for 40 days and 40 nights. Just as Christ stood firm in this account that is before us, in Mark chapter 12, he stood firm then, and understand, church, he still stands firm today, that though evil is real and evil men are working and trying to seduce and destroy the reality that Christ is the Savior of the world, they can never destroy the eternal and perfect work of God. In fact, that idea of the tempting of Christ in Mark's gospel as Jesus was taken into the wilderness is the very same wording that is used here in Mark chapter 12. And who was behind the tempting in the wilderness? Well, it was Satan. And who would we say was behind the questioning that takes place in Mark chapter 11 and 12? It was the enemy. They were, he was seeking to destroy and he was using men to do his work. And the first thing we see and understand here today is that evil men will work together for a common cause if it benefits them. And the thing that they were trying to accomplish here in this moment was to destroy the person of Christ. We understand from a political standpoint why the Herodians wanted to get rid of Christ. And we can understand, I, th I think in part from a religious perspective, why the Pharisees wanted to destroy Christ. And while one had to do with, with politics and finances and the other had to do with, with true religion, as they would have called it back then, we understand that the thing that really fueled their anger was the reality of the claim that Christ made that he was indeed the Son of God. And so while, while this is a question of money, understand their, their true question wasn't about money. The, the thing they had a problem with with Christ was simply the claims that he was making, that he was indeed the Son of God, that he claimed to be the Messiah, the one who had been foretold of, the one who had been promised to come. And so it wasn't a question about money, but the thing that truly angered them was this reality of the gospel, that Christ claimed to be the Savior of the world. And the Pharisees hated that. They despised this, this idea that Christ would claim to be the very Son of God. And the Herodians hated it. Why? Because Rome was the Savior. And yet the gospel caused these evil men to come together 
These men who despised one another on a regular basis, they joined forces now to seek to destroy Christ. And oftentimes we understand that even in our day, the gospel fuels the desires of wicked men. Do you understand that, that in our world, and we're not going to get overly political this morning, but do you understand in our world that there is an agenda to move us away from the truth? I think we can see it in almost every setting of life. And why is that? Well, truly, it all boils back down to the gospel, that there is one man who was God, who gave his life for men so that they could be forgiven. And everything that stands in opposition to the gospel would say, but I don't need to be forgiven. I can be good enough or I can make it there on my own. And that's in some ways what these men were saying. So the claims that Christ made and the gospel that Christ preached had fueled the evil desires of evil men to the point where they were doing anything and everything they could to seek to destroy the Savior of the world. But friend, as we saw last week, we understand that the plans of these evil men, though they were evil and though they were vicious, were ultimately under the control of a sovereign God. Because there were many times up until this point where they sought to destroy him and they couldn't, where they wanted to destroy him, but they didn't have the power. But one day we understand that they would destroy him. But who was it that gave final permission for that to happen? Well, it was God in heaven. And so while these evil men thought they were advancing, while they thought they were gaining ground, the reality is they were right where God wanted them to be. And while he would use them to put to death his son, we understand that it wasn't their plan that wins, but it's God's plan that wins. So the first thing as we understand this idea of not falling prey to silly questions is that we have to understand that the gospel fuels the desires of wicked men. And so when we in our world, find people that are so opposed to Christianity. Understand, friend, that's the way it's always been. We're not living in a new scenario, something that's never existed before, but this is the way that it's always been. They destroyed the prophets. They murdered Christ. They imprisoned believers in the first century and put them to death, and that still happens in our world today, and Christ explained to us that this would happen. They hated me, and guess what? They're going to hate you. But be not afraid. Why? Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And only the things that God decrees and desires to happen will eventually come to pass. And we see that fully and finally in the story of Christ. And so first off this morning, the gospel fuels the desires of wicked men. Secondly today, and that was my longest point, just so you know. <laughs> Secondly today, the gospel recognizes the value of civil, civil government regardless of its corruptness. There's probably a bunch of people in here right now that say, I don't like that at all. But what does Christ say? They ask him the question, is it lawful to give to Caesar? And the crowd begins to murmur, should we give? Should we not give? What should we do? And everyone is hanging on the words of Christ at this moment. Some because they truly wanted to know as we think about the crowds that were surrounding him. Some because they wanted to hear what he said so they could use it against him and manipulate and twist his words to put him to death, to get rid of him finally and fully. But as we understand Christ's answer here, we understand that Christ would say the gospel or in the gospel, we as believers recognize the value of civil government regardless of its corruptness or corruption. And so Christ goes on to say in verse number 15, or Mark says, but he knowing their hypocrisy. Let us never lose this idea that though God or Christ was indeed fully man, he was also fully God. And as they came to him with their questions, with their words that they were using to manipulate him, Mark points out to us that Christ knew exactly what was going on. He saw their hearts. He heard their words. He knew what they were seeking to do. He knew their hypocrisy. And then he began to speak and he said to them, why tempt ye me? Why are you bringing me this question? Why are you even bothering asking me this thing that you both don't agree on? Christ knew what was going on here. He knew exactly what was going on here. But instead of condemning them in this moment and, and casting them out of the temple and 
and saying all manner of evil against them, we see that Christ begins to answer them. Why tempt ye me? And then he says, bring me a penny that I may see it. This amount of money, it's not a penny as we understand it today, but this amount of money would have been used to pay the, the poll tax or the tax that the Romans had set up. It was a part of the census that they would take. And this was to, to fund Rome and all the corruption that was taking place in that. This tax was used to do things that Jewish people would not agree with. This tax was used to, to help support a government that was oppressing them as they occupied this place that the Jews said they didn't belong. Most likely, a Jewish person, as Christ asked this question, would not have had one of these coins on them. Why? Because they would not want to identify with Rome in any way, shape, or form. And so as Christ says, give me a penny that I may see it, they, they find one probably from the Herodians, and they bring it to Christ, and, and as Christ looks on it, or looks at it, he says unto them, whose is the image and superscription? And everybody in the group understands what Christ is asking. On the coin, like our coins, it would have been two-sided. One would have had a, a picture of, of Caesar, and, and it would have um, said on it something to the effect of uh, Caesar, son of the divine, of Augustus. And by quoting that phrase, they would have been in some ways saying, Hail Caesar. They would have in some ways been saying, this is the guy who's in charge, and this is what is due him. So Christ asked the question, whose image is on it? And they say Caesar. Well, on the other side of that coin, it would have had a picture of his mother, and there would have been a saying, Pontifus Maximus, which to us means absolutely nothing. But that phrase actually means high priest. And so for them to carry a coin with a picture of Caesar and a picture of Caesar's mother, one side saying that, that he was the son of the divine and the other side saying that he was indeed the high priest, what would that have done to a Jewish person? It would have destroyed them. They would have despised everything about that. They would have done everything they could have to have not taken part in what was going on because of this Roman oppression. And so Christ asked the question, he says unto them, whose image is on it, and what is the superscription? And they say, it's Caesar. And then Jesus answers them and says these words, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Can you imagine their blood boiling in that moment? The Pharisees, the Jewish crowd who was hoping that Christ was the one who was coming to overthrow the government? Remember, that's why many were cheering for him so excitedly. That's why many flocked to him, because the words that he said were so different than anything that, that they had ever heard. The authority he spoke with was greater than any authority that was, was seen in that day of mere rabbis or teachers. And when Christ said these words, render to Caesar the things that were Caesar's, there was something that would have sparked inside of these people that would have been angered, that would have been frustrated, that would have thought to themselves, man, man, Christ has just given in to the Romans. He, he has proved their point and he's taking part in this oppression that we are facing. But understand this, when Christ says render or to give to Caesar that which is Caesar's, he is not saying worship or agree with or go along with everything that Rome and Caesar has set up in that day and in that time. But he's just simply making a point that human government was implemented first, not by Rome or by Caesar, but by who? But by God. And the reality is, regardless of how corrupt government is and can be, at least in the world we live in, there's still a benefit to government. Who, who drove here on paved roads? Now, I know some of these roads in Franklin County they're a little rough, right? They could use a touch-up job here and there. Josh, can you get on that for us? Well, who maintains the roads? We know that government maintains the roads. Have you gotten any mail in your post office box recently? Now, we know, same thing with the post office. Like, 
getting a little slower. Things are getting lost a little more. It's still a, a government institution. Who's thankful that, that, I mean, I was thinking, and it wasn't even to do with this, but we have, I think, eight or nine men in our church who serve in some way uh, in, in, in a, a military, with a military presence. Who's thankful for a U.S. military? Who's thankful for Border Patrol agents? We've got two of them here today. There, there's a benefit to government, and that's all Christ is saying. He's not saying, worship Caesar. He's not saying, even agree with everything that Caesar and Rome says to do. He's just simply stating this, that we as humans who live in a world with a government that God has set up have an obligation or a duty to be respectable citizens in the place that God has us, regardless of how bad it is. And we could say, well, our government has gone down the tubes. Well, just remember who Jesus is speaking to. And just think about for a few minutes what was to come to them as Nero would finally take over. Think about the writings of Peter and Paul as we get towards the end of the New Testament and the severe persecution that these men and women were facing, being threatened to be put to death because of the things that they believed. Peter and Paul never say, rise up, push back. They tell them to be good citizens. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 2 that we're to pray and intercede and give thanks for kings and authority. You could go to the book of Daniel and be reminded how it's God who raises up kings and sets them in the position that they are. And so while we enjoy human government when the political winds blow in our favor, and then we despise human government when they blow in a different direction, Christ is, is not so much making a political statement here as he is making a statement of, of human and Christian responsibility when living under a government that God has final say over. And so is government corrupt? I think we could probably agree with that, Right? If, if you are wearing a tinfoil hat and you don't see that, friend, let's have a conversation after church. I think we can agree. Government is corrupt. It truly is. But who has the final say and who rises to positions of power in the world that we live in? It's God. And so what does Christ say? He says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. So what does that mean? It's pay your taxes, first and foremost. It, it means... Treat human government with the respect that God calls us to respect it with. Now, in our country, we have the opportunity and the right and the privilege to vote our opinions and to vote our preferences and to vote our beliefs. But even when those things don't go our way, we still have a responsibility to human government regardless of how corrupt it is. And so I would ask you, I would ask myself, whether you agree or don't agree with the powers that be, When's the last time you actually prayed for them? Probably, depending on the four-year swing, we either pray really hard for our government or we speak really poorly of our government. And Christ just simply says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. You don't have to agree. And I'm all for having civil conversations about the, the political realm of our world. Just don't let it take place on Facebook, please. But render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And so first off this morning, the gospel fuels the desires of wicked men. The Herodians and the Pharisees came to Jesus seeking to catch him, seeking to trip him up. And then we see the gospel recognizes the value of civil government regardless of its corruptness. Christ knew what was going on in the hearts of these men. He knew their hypocrisy. He knew the desires of Rome. He knew what would finally come to him at the hands of an evil and corrupt government. And what does he still say? Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. The third thing we see, and it's not specifically in the text, but it's this, the gospel unites those who hold opposing opinions on secondary matters. Who was there on this day? Well, we understand it was the Pharisees and the Herodians, right? 
That's the quick and simple answer. But who else was there on this day? Well, a group of people whom Jesus was teaching in the temple courts as he walked from place to place, as he used the the temple likely as an illustration for the things that he was teaching ultimately about himself. We also understand that the disciples were there on that day. The 12 men whom Christ chose for himself to serve with him, to run with him in this life, whom he would eventually release this mission too, to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Well, who amongst the disciples could have had opposing opinions when it came to the political question that was at hand at this day? Probably all of them, right? They, they all in some way would have disagreed about something, but two in particular. Matthew, who was a tax collector, and Simon, who was what? A zealot. Now, what's a zealot? Somebody who doesn't just oppose Roman government, but is really one who is willing to give their life to oppose the Roman government. There was no way they would ever, ever, ever pay a Roman tax. Every chance they got, they would stand up against Rome, against the soldiers, against those who were doing the bidding for Rome. Every chance they got, they would stand against them. And then you have Matthew, a tax collector, who was doing the bidding of Rome. And where were they on this day? They were together with Christ as his disciples. So what does that mean? It means that the gospel has a way of uniting those who hold opposing opinions on secondary matters. And guess what, friend? So much of what we get bent over shape, bent out of shape over in our world today is a secondary matter. Are you saying things like the debate on gender or homosexuality or, or abortion, that, that those things are secondary? No, I'm actually not saying that at all because the Bible is clear on those things and our opinion and our lives should be based not off of what we feel or how we think in our fleshly mind, but it should be based off of what the scripture says. But how many of us agree that we don't agree with everybody on everything? I guarantee if if I was to bring two people up here, we could very quickly find something that they disagree on. But what do, they dis- what, what do they agree on? The reality that Jesus is the Savior of the world? That he's the one who gave his life for humanity? And so often we label ourselves and class ourselves by the things that divide us rather than the things that unite us. And as we understand what's going on here, we see that, that these who are in the group on this day, yes, there were some that were divided namely the Pharisees and the Herodians. But there were some who were united, who in other areas of life would have disagreed sharply. So the gospel shifts us from holding secondary things as our source of identity, and it gives us a foundation who is Christ to build a new life off of. Up until the call of discipleship in the life of Matthew and Simon, they were known as the tax collector and as the zealot. But what were they known as now? Followers of Him. Followers of Christ. Above all, they were known as those who had given themselves to propagate this message that was dividing the world. And these two men who who normally probably would have stood toe-to-toe and opposition towards one another have now linked arms for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the kingdom. We see in scriptures that Peter and Paul were at opposition, sometimes over what they believed. Do you know who you never see in opposition? Simon and Matthew. Why? Because the things they disagreed on were secondary and not primary. I have heard people say, and it is a sad reality, that I could never go to church with a person that believes X, Y, or Z. Friend, then I would say to you, then you better check your salvation. Because if you can't go to church with them, what are the chances that you're actually going to heaven with them? Think through it. And while it's not specifically in the text, it is in the text because the disciples are there. And so the gospel unites those who hold opposing opinions on secondary matters. I'm going to use him as an example 
because I love him and I know he can handle it. Evan and I think very differently at times on a lot of things. But do you know that Evan has a heart for the gospel? He does. And after every conversation that we've ever had where there was a disagreement, do you know what I never questioned? His love for me. Why? Because the gospel is so much bigger than everything else in this world. And if we truly believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that he is the door of salvation for all who come to him by faith, if we believe those things, friend, then let's lay down our swords when it comes to secondary things and press forward in the primary things. I'm not going to tell you what you should believe about X, Y, and Z, but I will tell you what you should believe about Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the only one who can change your life. So the gospel unites those who hold opposing opinions on secondary matters. Do you think that any of the disciples shifted their opinions over time? I'm sure they did. Do you think they ever all fully believed like Christ believed? Probably not because of their imperfections. But what did Christ still call them? Those that he loved those that he served with, those that he gave this mission of the kingdom to. And so the gospel unites those who hold opposing opinions on secondary matters. And then finally, this morning, the gospel serves, I'm sorry, the gospel frees us to serve wherever we are and whatever we face. The gospel frees us to serve wherever we are and in whatever we face. And the final part of verse number 17, obviously she didn't like what I said about her dad. Um, Jesus says in verse 17 again, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So Jesus says, give me a penny. He takes the penny, he looks at it, he says, whose superscription, whose image is on this penny? And the crowd cries out, it's Caesar's, it's Caesar's. We understand, Jesus, it's Caesar's. And that's the question that we're asking. Should we or should we not pay the tax that they have imposed upon us as they're oppressing us, as they've occupied us and are treating us in ways that we don't like and in ways that we don't believe we deserve? So Jesus then goes on to say, render unto God the things that are God. So Christian, render to Caesar the things that are God, or to Caesar's. And then as Jesus is looking at that coin, it's almost as he looks at the crowd, and as he looks at the crowd, and he holds up the coin, he says, this coin is stamped with an image, but so are you. Whose image are we made in? The image of God. And so we could say, and I know we can go down a rabbit trail with this that I'd I'm not going to go down now, but we could say that we are twice gods, if that makes sense. We are gods first as his creation. Every person that has ever been born upon the face of the earth, whether you think they should have it or not, are made in the image of God. They're, they're, they're the Imago Dei. They're, they're God's finest creation, we would say, his prized possession. Every person is stamped with the image of God. But understand this, church, if you have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, you are twice God's. And so render to God the things that are God's. What does that mean? It means that wherever I find myself and whatever predicament I'm in and whatever the religious structure or, or unstructure is of my day, that wherever I find myself, I am able to serve God. Why? Because I belong to Him and I can serve Him in pureness of heart. It doesn't matter what the government says. Take a look at Daniel. It doesn't matter what the government says. I can serve God in, in a way that glorifies God because I am His. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is this. 
Are we rendering to God the things that are God's? You see, we would rather spend more time talking about rendering to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Well, I don't think we should, and I don't agree with this law, and this law is not how I would have written it, and I don't like this decree that the government has made, and I wouldn't do it that way if I was in charge. And we all have our opinion, and that is secondary to what Christ says in the end of verse number 17, render to God the things that are God's. And friend, if you are here today and you have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, then what is God's? Everything. Well, that's not as much fun to talk about. I would much rather discuss the political world where it has an effect on me, but it doesn't really affect me. I can tell you what I believe on, on many different policies that I've written, and guess what? At the end of the night, I can go lay my head on my pillow knowing that my opinion, at least right now, my opinion won't cause me to stand trial before a judge and a jury. But do I go to bed every night thinking, that one day I will stand before a judge? And the question in reality will be, did you render to God the things that are God's? And while we all want freedom, friend, I, I will beat that drum. I want freedom. I want freedom for myself. I want freedom for my kids. I want freedom for your families. I want freedom to gather to worship. I, I, I enjoy freedom, and I'm thankful for the men and women who have given their lives to fight for the freedoms that we have in this country. But understand this, friend, that if freedom is ever taken from us as it was for the Jews in this day, we still have an obligation to render to God the things that are God's. What does the word render mean? It means to pay. It means to give. Some say it means to give back. So because of what God has done for me, because he's given me new life, I, I can never repay him. But what can I do? I can give myself back to him to say, God, I'm yours, whatever you want. God, I'm yours, whatever you desire to bring to my life, I am willing to follow you through it. God, I'm, I'm willing to give my all for you. And I was reminded this week of the words that Jim Elliott said. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Anybody like possessions? We've got a few of us honest people. Yeah, we all do. Some like it maybe at more of an extent than others. Or yeah, We all like things. We like stuff. And sometimes we give our lives for those things. I'm going to work overtime so that I can. I'm going to rob Peter and pay Paul so I can go here. Uh, I probably shouldn't give any money to the church this week. iPhone 15 just dropped. All right. And, and what do we often do? We prove who we're rendering our, rendering our lives to by how we live our lives. And I'm not saying it's wrong to have an iPhone 15. I'm jealous of you. <laughs> not saying it's wrong to go on vacation. Obviously, I told you we're leaving tomorrow to go. I'm not saying it's wrong to do any of those things. But what is the best thing? To not give my life so I can have those things, but to give my life to God, to render unto God the things that are God's. I've shared with this, you, with this with you before as I think about my kids and the future of their lives. Noah's at that age where he's trying to figure out what he wants to do. Charlotte says she's never leaving. <laughs> um, and so, you know, we've got quite the spectrum in our house right now of, of what the future holds for us. I, I was talking to my brother the other day. His son, how old is Michael, Brianna? Five? Four or five? He's, he's like a, a Lego wizard, and he, he po posted a picture the other day of this Lego set. It's like 12 plus, and his son can just sit down and do it. He looks at the instructions and just does it. I said, he's an engineer, and he texted me back last night and said, nope, 
probably going to spend the rest of his life in my basement playing video games. <laughs> we don't know what the future holds, right? But do you know what I desire for my kids above all else? That wherever they find themselves, that for all of their days, they will just simply render to God the things that are God's. But do you know who they have to see that in first? Me. And the gospel frees me to do that. The gospel frees me to say, God, whatever my law in life is, whatever the path is you've chosen for me, that I'm just going to render to you what belongs to you. That I'm going to worship you and that I'm going to serve you, that I'm going to praise you, that I'm going to follow you, that I'm going to sacrifice for the sake of the kingdom, God, that, that my life will be the Romans 12, 1 and 2, living sacrifice so that I can prove to the world not how good I am, but how good my God is. And so as the religious and the political groups came to Jesus on this day asking the question, should we pay or should we not pay? Jesus says, get over yourselves in some degree, right? Don't sacrifice the primary for the secondary. Don't say that we're going to get hung up on the things that don't matter so that they pull us away from the things that do matter. And when we give our lives to the things that do matter, guess what? We will live appropriately in the things that matter less. As we make rendering to God the things that are God's our primary focus, then our lives will have an automatic outflow of living how God has desired and designed for us to live in this world? Does it mean that we will agree with and love everything that everyone else always does in government? No. Does it mean we'll agree with what everybody else in our church body does and believes? No. But what does it mean that together we'll be a collective body in St. Albans and Franklin County and Chittenden County who are just simply living their lives for the glory of God. That's what Christ's plea is here. He understands that, that probably nobody there is fully going to like his answer. But I guarantee that they walked away from that day saying, wow. In fact, the text tells us that. The Bible says they marveled at him. They can't wrap their minds around him. And friend, do you understand that when you live as one who renders to God the things that are God's, the world will marvel at you as well? They'll say, I don't get it. I don't get how you forgive the way you do or love the way you do or give the way you give. I don't get why you, why you spend so much time at that church. It's that guy is not a good speaker. He's not very good looking, and he always wears those vests. <laughs> but one day they'll ask questions. And when they say, why do you do what you do? They say, because somebody gave his life for me. And rendering to God the things that are God's is the only thing that I can do in return. And so they marveled at him. Yes, he answered them, masterfully. Yes, he put them to silence. Yes, he didn't get in a heated debate with them. Yes, he elevated what mattered most and not what was a hot-button issue of the day. And they marveled because Christ in some ways made sense of something that nobody else could make sense of, and yet at the very same time, they didn't understand. It made sense, but it didn't make sense. They, they understood, but they didn't understand. And as Christ answered the Pharisees and the Herodians on this day, he again put them in their proper place, revealing the hypocrisy and the evil within their own heart, while at the very same time revealing that he was staying steadfast and strong in the mission that God had given him. And so as we think through these four points again quickly to summarize things, we often ask, what should we fight against? Remember when, when everybody was uh, boycotting everything? How'd that go over? Well, you couldn't shop anywhere. We had, all had to be homesteaders, right? That's not much fun. But is there a time to boycott? I think there is. Is there a time to stand against government? I think there is. In, in fact, that's what we see Peter do, right? What does he say? 
When they say, you can't preach the gospel anymore or teach in Jesus' name, he said, but we've got to obey God rather than men. And so we have to know where to draw the line, but I'm fearful that much of American Christianity has drawn the line way too early, that we've said we're going to be divided about everything and, and we're going to separate and segregate and you're the bad people and we're the good people. And, and I think Jesus would say, hey, get over yourselves to some degree. You've got to live in the world. You don't have to support everything the world does. You don't have to agree, but especially when it comes to government, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. We often wonder, I don't, maybe you do, how can I go to church with people who are so different than me? And as we said, friend, the gospel breaks down the barriers that we build up and prop up. Christ says there's no difference between Jew and Greek, Jew and Gentile. Well, of course there was a difference. They've got different names. Of course there's a difference. They bowed to different governments. But what does Christ say? In Christ, there is no difference. Your brothers your sisters, and so act that way. And I know as kids, we fight as brothers and sisters, but hopefully there's some maturity in our lives where we put aside the fighting, right? I don't know the last time I fought with my adult brothers. Don't always agree with them, but guess what? They're going to live their lives in answer to their God, and I'm going to live my life in answer to God. doesn't mean we're enemies. doesn't mean that we're we're opposing each other in the gospel. It just means we've set aside secondary things for the, the primary things. We often wonder, what will life be like for our kids? And I think instead of trying to figure out what life will be like for our kids, we should just simply prepare our kids for whatever, brings, or for whatever life brings them. Is it wise to sit down with your kids and say, okay, kids, I think in seven years... Um, it's going to be Republicans in charge again, and so this is what you're going to have to do, this is what you're going to have to say, this is how you have to vote on every issue. Oh, and these are going to be the issues of that day. Is that the wise way to, to raise our kids? No. What would be the wise way to raise our kids? Hey, kids, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. When it comes to matters of government and, and politics, let God guide your vote. Let the Word of God inform you and in how you're to live your life. It's no mistake, friend, that, <laughs> that as this question is asked of Christ here, should we pay or should we not pay? Then not in the next passage. Matt gets the next one, and it's a doozy. But the one after that, Christ teaches on the great commandment. It's, it's no mistake. Why? Because these people were so divided in themselves, thinking, how can we live here? And Jesus says, this is the way you live. By loving God first and loving others through the love that God has given you. And so while the world would ask us questions and while we would often ask questions, friends, may we not fall prey to silly questions. Is heaven real? Is hell real? Are there people that are going to suffer in hell eternally? Yeah. So get over yourself. And as much as I say that to you, I say it to me. Why? Because there's, for lack of a better term, there's bigger fish to fry. There's things that are more important than what I believe about secondary matters. And what is the most important thing? What I believe about the gospel and how the gospel informs my life. Friend, if you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, understand that this Christ that is speaking in the temple just days before he would go to the cross is the very one who said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And while the world and maybe even yourself is saying, I've got to find a way, I've got to figure it out, Jesus is saying, I've already figured it out. It's done. Just come to me. I would ask you today, will you come to him? Will you see him as one who loves you? Will you see him in all his beauty, in all his glory, in all his splendor? Will you bow to him and receive the forgiveness that he is offering? It'll change your life. It'll probably even change some of your secondary opinions. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. 
as we think through this text today. May we not fall prey to silly questions. And as we leave, may we simply leave with the desire to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but above all, to render to God the things that are God's. And what is God's? That's your life. Let's pray. God, we ask that you'd help us today to understand what is being said. We ask that that we would live lives that line up with this text that you have given to us. And God, I understand there's some things I don't like about the Bible sometimes. But God, in the areas that I don't like what the Bible says, may I submit to your Spirit so that He would conform me to the image of your Son. That my secondary opinions would would change to line up with the Word of God, but they would not be my primary identity. God, help me to render to you the things that are yours. And the simplest way to say that is, help me to give you my life. God, I think we all struggle with this, probably in different ways. Areas of our lives that we don't want to give up, areas of our lives that we are very opinionated over, areas of our lives that we have caused division when it comes to speaking to others about the gospel. Help us to remember it's okay to have our opinions. But I pray above all we would would render to you what is yours. God, if there's any here today who have never trusted Christ, I pray that today would be the day of their salvation. They would understand that, that this Christ who spoke this truth about giving our lives to God is the very one who gave his life to God and for men that He became a sacrifice for sin so that we could be forgiven. God, help us today. Help them today, God, to understand that truth and to come to Christ with saving faith. God, we thank You that You're good to us. We pray that You'd use Your Word to work in our hearts even as we wrap up the service. In Christ's name we pray.